0: Hello, and a very warm welcome back to the Trap One podcast. Today, our team has a monopoly on discussing the New Year's Day 2022 special, Eve of the Daleks. We've gone through the Trap One panelist storage locker, and we've assembled a fam. I had to go back and look for a new team member every few minutes, and I had less and less time each loop. But we have a team. On the first loop, it's me, Jason. On the second loop, there's me and... It's me, it's Psy. Hello, everyone. Hello, Psy. On the third loop, it's me, Cy, and...
1: Hi, I'm Jan, in New York.
0: (laughs) And on the fourth and final loop, there's me, Psy, Jan,
2: and... And hi, I'm Daniel.
0: By the time the four of us are done discussing the episode, we'll probably have blown up the podcast, but at least enjoy the fireworks before we do that. We made the fireworks just for you. Cy and I, of course, are part of your regular team of Trap One co-hosts. Jan made her Trap One debut back in November, discussing with us Chapter 4 of Doctor Who Flux, Village of the Angels. Jan, this is your second time out, and welcome back. Could you just reintroduce yourself to the team?
1: Sure. Hi, I'm Jan Fennec. I am a writer uh, from New York. I've done a lot of outside-in stuff, as Jason well knows, co-writer of Red, White and Who, the story of Doctor Who in America, which is the only book about Doctor Who fandom in America, starting from the beginning till a couple of years ago. And I've been a Doctor Who fan for, oh God, decades. So that's me.
0: And making his debut to the Trap One fam is Dan. Dan, could you just introduce yourself and tell us a bit about yourself?
2: Yeah, uh, my name's Daniel Knight. Um, I've been a Doctor Who fan since uh, as long as I can remember. Um, my earliest memories of Doctor Who... Um, And I'm a fairly new podcaster. I've done a couple of uh, podcasts with Joe uh, Ford on uh, Hamster with a Blunt Pen Knife, talking about Destiny of the Daleks and New Earth.
0: So this is not your first Dalek-themed podcast, so I'm sure you're ready to go with plenty of takes. Mm -hmm. Definitely, yes. We arrive at a somewhat polarizing moment for Doctor Who fandom following the conclusion of the Doctor Who Flux season. Uh, I was here on Trap 1 to discuss Flux chapters 3 and 4, and if you listen to those two episodes in sequence, you can sort of chart my disillusionment uh, creeping on in real time. Uh, Most of the reactions to Doctor Who Flux... uh, seemed to vary between uh, disappointment and confusion. I was elated for chapters one, two, and three. And by the end of chapter six, I was uh, scratching my head like Carvanista for multiple reasons. Um, I wasn't sure what to make of Eve of the Daleks. I knew it was going to be our fourth New Year's Day special, uh, the third of which uh, were going to star the Daleks. I was kind of dreading the return of Chris Noth, who was in the last Dalek special given the recent news stories about him, but fortunately he was not in this time. And in fact, this episode didn't have much to do with Resolution or Revolution of the Daleks at all. And it wound up being a somewhat comedic, fortunately, standalone episode. So uh, we have a team to help me uh, sort through just what I thought of this episode, and we're going to break it down in every dimension and every detail. And I want to start off with a very serious and important question. Uh, Cy, we're going to go to you first and then Jan and then Daniel. (coughs) Here's my question. I want to know if anyone who was involved in the writing or the conception or the design of Eve of the Daleks, if any of them had ever been in any storage locker before anywhere – (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> that's a very good question i'm not sure they had <laughs> very much
3: I, it seemed like more a generic warehouse than a, a storage facility but i considering it's a family-owned business it looks like maybe they just bought a warehouse and tried to start a storage facility in it then maybe they their hearts are not in it so Perhaps that's why they haven't succeeded.
0: There was a fleeting reference in the first iteration of the time loop, and if you blink your ears, you missed it, that there was a competitor right across the street who was getting all the customers. Uh, But the inside of it, I've spent a fair amount of time in storage lockers. I've had storage units in three states at various points. I've never stored uh, taxidermy or canned food in them. Uh, I've never been in a storage locker that looked quite like the one we saw on New Year's Eve. Uh, Jan, what do you think of the setting?
1: It drove me crazy. Somebody who <laughs> one, one of the things that I do along with writing is I'm also a, a toy and doll collector slash dealer and write on that stuff too. And I have not one but two separate lockers in a storage facility near my house. And I it drove me crazy because the place that i've been in has been in business for quite some time so at least 10 years so more than the five years that, that sarah was dealing with and the fact that nobody had keys to their own padlocks for their own lockers was the first thing that stood out to me and secondly how in god's name do you stay in business for five years with one customer And I know there's been a lot of discussion on the internet as to whether Sarah meant that he was the one customer there that evening, but I rewatched it again. And she specifically says, you are my only customer. So what is he paying and how is she paying for... You know, the real estate, the taxes, the, the power the, for the lights, electricity, whatever else is going on in that place. If there's no income coming in, because what is he paying? $10,000 or 10,000 pounds a month to pay for the storage <laughs> facility. And on top of that, she has a second employee who presumably she pays. And granted, he's using her entire top floor as his own personal apartment slash. You know, storage facility, warehouse, whatever. But it it drove me absolutely crazy because it made absolutely no sense. And I I don't think Chris Chippinall has ever been within 10 feet of an actual storage facility. Even old ones, because I had friends who, when they were moving from college, grad school, had their own lockups and had their stuff in there. And it was still basically the same as it is now, including having your own lock and your own key. The managers have like a – usually have some kind of ghost key to to get into pass key to get into, But everybody has their own way of getting in and out, and it would never be open at midnight on New Year's Eve.
0: Yeah, staff usually goes home at 5 o'clock on the nose. And I know at my last storage unit, you had 24-hour access if you were a patron, but uh, you weren't going to get a manager on staff on a a holiday certainly.
1: Right, the place Uh, that that I keep my stuff, I think it's 10 o'clock – it, they're open until ten o'clock, but nobody's there, but I guess in terms of the, the, there's a instant, automatic gate that you need a passcode for to get in to drive in, and I think that must shut down at like ten o'clock at night so that for security reasons so that nobody can get in after between like 10 and six a m but it's still you know seven days a week and there's you can get in and out usually, but yeah, and management leaves at like five or six o'clock.
0: And Daniel, this is your first trap one, so here's your first question. How do you operate a storage locker for five years and not manage to turn a profit? Because those places are a gold mine if you know what you're doing, but this appears to have been maybe a tax write-off for the sole purpose of losing money.
2: I, I've got to be honest, I've never been in a storage facility, so... I, I I would imagine this is very much like the faulty towers of storage facilities. It, it's, <laughs> it, 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 you you kind of wonder how um, somebody who like Sarah is quite abrasive with her customers is going to make a profit at all, and it's probably no surprise that she's she's only got one customer. Um, and the one customer seems to be the, the one who has a crush on her. And I wonder if she actually sort of suspe- suspects that. I don't know. But, uh, I, 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 like I said, I've never been in, in a storage facility, um, and maybe Chris Chibnall hasn't. I don't know. Um, so there are, in this country, quite a lot of old sort of it, – it's sort of like a, a, a ruined warehouse that's been – neglected and Sarah does say she sort of inherited it from her uncle who you know you just sort of maybe go with the flow that it 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 is sort of a bit contrived in the terms of, of of setting it on New Year's Eve and having those two people there just just because because they are I don't know it's it's a I, it's, I, I, like I said, I've never been in a storage facility, so I just imagined it being very much run down. Probably it wasn't built as a storage facility. It was built as whatever it was for a warehouse of, of, of some sort. So it, it kind of, yeah, you wouldn't be able to sustain it for, for that amount of time. So presumably her parents or her mother is, is you know, constantly um, bailing her out, probably. And that's why she's on the phone to her constantly.
0: I think you're on to something there. I think we could probably get a three-year big finish box set cycle out of uh, Ashley <laughs> B just alienating customer after customer, and each disc in each box set is her ruining a relationship with a different customer until only Jeff and Nick are left. Do you know what? I'd listen to that. I think Ashley B was so
3: good that I think that would, would carry it nicely. Uh, yeah, she was mean,
1: great.
0: If you listen – If you listen to this back, I I sound like I'm very down on Doctor Who in general. I've been bashing uh, Flux, and I've been bashing the storage locker unit. That's just me being comedic. I really enjoyed this episode more than I had anything since uh, Once Upon Time. And the first time that I watched it, I was just sitting there getting happier and happier um, with each successive iteration. Uh, I think one of the key reasons for the success is not so much the Daleks or the Doctor Who storyline, but Ashling B as the principal guest star and as the pseudo companion uh, for, for for the week. So, Si, we'll start with you again. Uh, what do you think about Ashling B, and how funny was she?
3: I thought she was brilliant. Um, it's very interesting. Um, I've only ever sort of seen her on panel shows in the UK. So, she's a, a frequent um, uh, panelist on QI, for instance, and um, she is brilliant and funny but i had didn't i was very wary because i didn't know if she was going to be able to act because i've not seen her act in anything before this so i was a bit sort of wary and just for oh is this going to be a bit of stunt casting i don't know can she carry this episode there's a very small cast and if if one of the performances fails then we're in big trouble here but actually i i thought she was she was spot on. She was absolutely brilliant. She was funny and she was feisty and she was annoyed. She did annoyed acting really, really well. And she was just a joy to watch throughout,
0: I thought. And Jan, uh, over to you. And we may as well bring in talk of the other principal guest star as well. Um, I have not heard his name pronounced. I think Ajani Salman is how I pronounce it here in the States. Apologies if I got that wrong. Um, I found his Instagram presence. He's uh, from Jamaica. He is an actor and a filmmaker, and he seems to have a pretty lively social media presence. He was the other principal guest star. Jan, how did you like the two uh, new members of the cast for this week?
1: I thought Ashlyn B was—I—I I, I, I had seen her name around, but I don't think I've ever seen her in anything, which is kind of a shock. Because usually, as I—I I think I said to Jason the other day that you know my my anglophile cred is kind of gone. Although she is Irish, so maybe that's why. Um, but I usually know a lot of the actors that a lot of Americans are like, "Who are these people?" And I'm like, "Oh no!" And I can rattle off an entire cv of what they've been in but i've never seen her in anything i loved her i mean honestly i found her to be more engaging more interesting more fun than i want to say any of the companions for the last three years um it's very frustrating to me that i liked her and i would rather her have been like the new companion than yaz even for the last two episodes that we're getting um i thought she was a scream and, and just like as you know uh yeah, she was good at being annoyed. She was good at being funny. She was good at dealing with her her mom. Um, she was good at telling off Daleks. And I, I really liked that running joke about just that they're robots and, you know, they're killer robots and what are we doing about them? And, you know, we don't like these things okay. instead of like, oh, my God, they're Daleks. Um, and the other gentleman, the guy who played Nick, I liked him. I I didn't really get anything bad about him, but nothing great about him either. But I think it was a really thankless role because... Chibnall seemed to be trying to you know, skirt the line. Initially, we're supposed to think he's kind of creepy or kind of messed up. And then we find out, no, he's a really nice guy. He's a weirdo, but let's go around the world with him. And that didn't quite click for me either. I mean, they had chemistry, but the story was off in terms of, and then, you know, she just met this guy and granted, she's been talking to him every New Year's Eve for the past five years, but he could still be a serial killer. We don't know.
2: I mean, I'm sorry, who, even if you
1: date somebody for a couple of days, has somebody's stuff left in their flat after they're done? I mean, yeah, long term, yes, you wind up with stuff that you didn't expect, you know, but or somebody who's been a friend and then you wind up dating them, but not somebody you've gone out with for like two, three days, leaving games and little figurines and shoes and whatever else he had in that locker. That was just that was a little too weird for me. So.
0: There was a pair of roller skates on the shelf, and when I was watching the episode back immediately before this recording, the very first post-it that we see is for a woman named Simone. Now, uh, those of you who are scholars of Nick's relationship history will observe that Nick and Simone dated between November 2020 and January 2021, and when she walked out on him, she left behind what appeared to be a 50-year-old box of Monopoly. Yeah,
1: it definitely was a vintage Uh, game.
0: So, number one, he had a crush on Sarah at the exact same moment that he was halfway through at the apex of his relationship with Simone. Maybe she dumped him because his crush on Sarah was spilling over over into their gameplay. Uh, Again, who has left a 50-year-old box of Monopoly and says, I bet she wants that back, and I'm going to pay 10,000 pounds a month to make sure she has access to it whenever (laughs) she calls me back? Uh, so uh, Daniel, back over to you. How did you like our two new guest stars?
2: Well, like Si, I'd only seen Ashling B as um, you know a, um, on quiz shows like QI or panel shows, I should say. I and I always find her. She's very funny, but sometimes she verges on on uh, on sort of irritating with me. Um, she was the guest host on a, a a BBC show called Have I Got News for You um, earlier last year, and the delivery. She she seemed to think that everyone in the audience was deaf because she was shouting at us, and I kind of felt a little bit sort of when it was announced she was going to be in the episode. I'm like, oh okay, but yeah, I mean, she she did win me over in the end. I thought she was, uh, I, I mean, sort of the. I, I mean, I mentioned about Faulty Towers earlier on. There was a slight sort of Basil faultiness about her. When she, when at one point she's confronted by the Daleks, it's like, oh, not you again. It's like, oh, you know, there was a very sort of that sort of frustrated, um, sort of impotent, I want to do my job and you're getting in the way is very, very almost quite Basil faulty like. Um, and she did do that very well. I, I like the scenes that she had with her with her mum, who's an actress called Pauline McLinn, who uh, you may know from a, a sitcom called Father Ted and um, another sitcom called Jam in Jerusalem, and Jerusalem, and she's brilliant in both of them. I would have liked to have seen a bit more of Pauline MacLynn, but um, the bits that we did see of her, I thought she was very, very funny and very good. Um, and the guy playing Nick, I I don't know if I agree that he's creepy. I think, yes, it is a bit weird keeping your ex-girlfriend's Monopoly boxes and everything else, when really you would kind of just you know, just give it back or, you know, just return it the day after you've split up. Um, and certainly I don't think I've kept anything from, from ex-girlfriends or anything like that. I'd be very careful because my wife's in the next room. I don't want her to get worried about this sort of thing. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think he's just a bit shy rather than a bit... Yeah, there is, there, there is a slight weirdness about keeping your ex-girlfriend's things in a, in a storage locker. But in a way, that's also quite kind, kind of sweet and nice. And he doesn't want to get rid of it because he doesn't want to hurt their feelings. So presumably, he's he's, he's split up with them amicably, for, for you know at, at least. And like you say, possibly he's split up with Simone, you know, in January two thousand and twenty-one because she's probably found out that he's been to the storage locker on New Year's Eve and has been chatting to this Sarah. So yeah, that, that's quite a nice nice thing that i hadn't noticed before and i think they had very good chemistry between them i'm not sure i would be you know disappearing off on a world trip with somebody that i i'd sort of had that a a very brief sort of relationship albeit over a a long period of time but you know maybe chris chibnall's a, a hopeless romantic and and wanted us to have a nice you know sort of riding off in the sunset in a taxi while the TARDIS is flying off in the background.
0: I agree. I think Chris Chibnall is hopeless. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Again, uh, hopefully we didn't lose half the audience because I was harching on him for the first ten minutes of this recording. Um, I thought the writing in this was actually very clever because, and again, I missed this the first time, uh, Sarah says to Nick at the very top of the first iteration, here we are again which is, you know, the perfect lead-in line because that's exactly what the rest of the episode is going to be about. And similar, I don't know how much everyone else here is as much a fan of Better Call Saul as I am, but there's a show that takes uh, a professional, well-known comedian of many years standing here in the States, Bob Odenkirk, and puts him in a show that gets more dramatic and more serious and more dark every year. And he is asked to portray emotional beats that – as a sketch comic in the 1990s would never have been on his radar and he crushes every single one of them if you look at the number of emotions that ashling b has to play in this hour i mean it's it's a very dark journey that her character goes on and you could see her despair and her frustration and her anger and i thought it was a terrific workout for straight acting for her and possibly will lead to much bigger and better things but uh Let's double back to the comedy. This was probably the first episode since Terry Nation ran out of ideas in 1965 to just (laughs) up and embrace the full comedy potential of the Daleks. I thought – and again, you put Nick Briggs in front of the microphone and you're going to get a a killer performance every time out. I thought the Daleks were legitimately, genuinely funny – in exactly the way we needed them to be, uh, especially after the Moffat years when Moffat was trying to reinvent the Daleks every time out. Just having them as self aware comic villains and yet scary at the same time for me worked really well. Saya, si, uh, how did you think of the Daleks this time out?
3: <clears throat> I loved it. I Every time um, they got sort of a one liner, I was just laughing away with it. I loved the. Bit where um, Daleks don't have managers and the very self-aware um, sort of bit where they um, said, um, I am not Nick. And I'm there thinking, yeah, you are. <laughs> you are. I screamed at it, honestly, I screamed at yeah. my
1: television when I first saw it. I was like, oh, yes, you are. It became like a panto, you know?
3: Uh,
1: no, I'm not. But yes, yeah, I, I am. Mm-hmm. Um,
3: but exactly. And I just thought that, that was really some great dialogue and some great uh writing from from chris chibnall i i've been really impressed with how he's written the daleks all the way through um his era he's done really interesting and unexpected things with them each time and um and this just sort of continues that i think he's he's really good for the daleks in a way i wasn't expecting
0: daleks do not store stuff (laughs) 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 exactly it's really
3: good it's really good and that that whole scene with dan and um and the dalek where dan's sort of trying to sort of distract it by talking about putting things into storage like like you would i really liked that and both dan and the dalek came over well there
0: Mm. and daniel we haven't heard from you this cycle uh (laughs) how did you react to this new comedic version of the daleks
2: I think it worked really well in the fact that they are very humourless, and that in itself makes them very humorous. You know, the the fact that it says I am not Nick, and you know that the guy doing the voice is called Nick Briggs. Yeah, as you say, it's very <laughs> funny, and also the the you know Daleks do not store and the other things that they said. It it really works. It, it it's, it's yeah because they they're saying it without a sense of humour. It, it it makes it humorous in it in itself. And like si, I've and I've said this before when I, I t- talked about Destiny of the Daleks, that I think Chris Chibnall has written better Dalek stories than the two other uh, writers for the new series. I think his three Dalek stories have been some of the best Dalek stories um, altogether, really. Um, and he's all constantly trying to do something different with them, with, with revolution. You know, you have the Dalek outside of its casing and really horrific, taking over... Um, I can't remember the lady's name. Um, and and developing that. And you have the single Dalek. Then you have the the Dalek drones in Revolution of the Daleks and being used as a, a weapon by the government. And now here they are, just three Daleks. Um, and, and having just three Daleks with them being so murderous, I think it really, really works well. You you know, you've stripped them down, you've given them new weaponry, which is sort of like a machine gun, sort of Gatling gun, isn't it? Um, that really sort of re- ramps up their sort of, uh, you know, nastiness and, and evil, uh, evilness. It really worked, uh, it really worked very well. A slightly odd, sort of feeling very uncomfortable with the idea of, constantly being exterminated it it taps into sort of like a a nightmarish scenario where you're being chased by someone and then you you know at the end of the you you, you're you're finally caught by that person and just as they you know shoot you or whatever you wake up and it felt like that that every time at the end of that time loop cycle they suddenly wake up and they're back to where they were It, it worked that worked really really well for me
3: yeah what i liked um Sorry to jump in there, um, was that um, this wasn't sort of a straight Groundhog Day um, scenario where just one character or one set of characters are learning and changing all the way through. What you've actually got is... All the human characters are learning and plotting. But at the same time, the Daleks are doing the same thing and they're changing their strategy and they're part of the time loop, but they're bringing in more Daleks because they've suddenly realised there are more people here than they're expecting. So they've got to bring in an extra one and then another one that you don't expect. And they're working out what the strategies are. I loved the time loop where the Dalek just appears in reception and is... Um, which um, uh, Sarah is not expecting at that point. And that, that's brilliant. That's what the Daleks are like. They're devious and they're clever. And I think just see sometimes just having um, two or three Daleks or even just one Dalek being clever and being sort of the ultimate villain is better than seeing thousands of them just marching through the sky. Sometimes you just want to see them at their very best. And I think we were seeing, seeing uh, really really great Daleks here
0: I mean as someone who comes to Doctor Who from the classic series I think the show works best when it has small casts and is letting the the props and the characters do the storytelling rather than the digital effects so I agree with you in that I think three Daleks work a lot better than 10,000 and it's more plausible for one time Lord to destroy three Daleks rather than uh, 10,000 but yeah I also to pick, piggyback on what Daniel said I love that new Dalek gun. I thought it was a terrific evolution of their design. Uh, There was the intent in the 60s to give the Daleks different weapons every time out, and they never quite managed to follow through with it, but I thought it worked really well here. Uh, Again, we forget that the Daleks were comedy villains in the chase and in the back half of Daleks' master plan, so it's not out of line for them to be funny here. But the new weapons and the fact that they're an executioner squad, I thought played off very well against the the comedy, the comedy and the horror uh, mixed in at the same time. So uh, the main conceit of the episode is that participants are trapped in a time loop, and Daniel mentioned this, but the wrinkle here is that the time loop gets one minute shorter with each iteration. And if you guys are like me, and I really, sincerely, truly hope that you're not – you sat there with a stopwatch and you timed each iteration <laughs> and you noticed that the segment times bore no relation to real time. Some of those segments would have blown well past midnight, 2021 slash 2022. But again, we've seen this time loop before. Uh, Next Generation did it in the episode with Tulsi Grammar. Uh, Discovery did it two years ago. Uh, how did you, uh, Simon has answered this already, so we'll go to Jan. How did you think the time loop concept Worked here. Well, what was new about it? What was hackneyed? And uh, how do you think Jimbo handled it in general?
1: I think he handled it very well. I mean, it's a it's a basic science fiction. You know, conceit and everything. Like, I can think of, there was a Groundhog Day episode of like Xena Warrior Princess. Um, you know, it's like if there's a if there's a science fiction or fantasy thing, they've probably done a time loop at some point. Um, I thought that he handled it well, on I like the fact that there was this tension of we're losing a minute every time, so we've got to figure out what we're doing and do it faster and and go right for it. So I thought that built up, even though I mean I didn't time it, but I also was able to figure out just from watching that wait a minute, especially the last bit was like, you know, it seemed like it was about a seven minute long. I mean, it, you can't, probably can tell me the exact numbers, but it felt like it was about a seven minute long segment of them trying to get everything and getting down to the basement and luring the Daleks and get everything set up for them. Um, so that bit was a little bit silly. I mean, I think he was trying to do a little bit with 42. Where that was real time, or the the uh, episode of 24 that was actually real time, live time, and it didn't quite make that. Um, and I've seen a lot of comparisons online, and I felt it too that in some ways it felt like he was trying to do a comedy version of um, Heaven Sent, which is one of my all time favorite Doctor Who episodes, and um, it's one of to me like one of the best episodes of television ever. So you know, yes, I'm a Moffat fangirl to begin with, but that episode is just brilliant, and the fact that he was kind of trying to do the same thing, but not. I it, I liked it, but then I didn't like it. I sort of go back and forth about you know. Because it seems like Chibnall does a lot of things that other people do instead of like he did find a new way of doing it, but it still feels like a lot of times he's repetitious. So I, I
0: mean, I, you 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 bring up Heaven Said, and that's certainly a very fair episode to bring up. But for me, if you're talking about time loops, it begins and it ends with Meglos, and this is <laughs> you know this is this is a this is a Meglos house. We are talking about Meglos. Uh, 24/7 here in my part of Brooklyn. Now you got to consider this: you have the first time loop episode, really, well, apart from Heaven sense, since Megalos, you have a room full of taxidermy, you have lots of stuffed animals with tails. He couldn't contrive a way anywhere in any one of the nine iterations. To have someone say, that's easy, just waggle its tail? I mean, come on, it was, I kept, it was right there, dude.
1: I kept waiting to hear chronic hysteresis also, and she never said it. Mm-hmm. I, was, I was a little disappointed in that one. I mean, if you're going to go back and you know throw in all sorts of other you know classic stuff in there, bring up some classic words too. So.
0: <laughs> and uh, Daniel, I haven't heard from you in a while. How did you like the time loop concept?
2: It reminded me a little bit of City of Death, you know, with the, in uh, part one where the saps – at the at the the table in the re, in the in the cafe, and suddenly you know Romana's noticed, or the doctor's noticed that Romana's being sketched, and suddenly you know she knocks the wine bottle off, and he screws the the, the artist screws the piece of paper up and chucks it away and walks off in disgust, and then suddenly they oh they're back again, um, but I'd forgotten about Megalos, Yeah, with well, the sort of the the repetition, at least here the repetition was sort of a bit of a mixture, and I I didn't sit there with a stopwatch um, to, to make sure that it was sort of sticking to the, you know, one minute less than the previous one. I was, I think I was enjoying it too much. So I, yeah, it, it did seem to me that there were, it, you know, even through my enjoyment that it was sort of not sticking to the time, but I, I don't think it really mattered. I think, I think it was, it, 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 it sort of, the, the the action and the and the and the, the drama and the and the comedy kept it kept covering over the, the, the problems of you know not sticking to the time of the of the time loop, if that makes sense.
0: That's a great point about City of Death, because in City of Death you have that great exchange where the doctor is acting out and Romana goes, you know, pay him no mind. He's having one of his funny turns. Yes. And Tom Baker goes, The whole world took a funny turn. <laughs> that would have been a great line to recycle, but I guess uh <laughs> it could have been you can't have everything um uh, but uh turning back to sci, with this basically being a, a comedy episode at heart does it matter that the science is, is full of holes and that the timing doesn't really doesn't really match up no i don't think so at all
3: um, <clears throat> um i i think the whole thing about doctor who is to get swept along in the story and if you're swept along in the story then none of that absolutely None of that matters at all, and if you're going to sit and nitpick all of those things, then three quarters to to more of Doctor Who falls apart if you do that, uh, especially from the science point of view. It yeah, it's very it's on very shaky ground the whole time, really. So no, that that didn't bother me at all. I was swept along with this story. I was laughing at it. I was willing them on. I was. Um, excuse me and just yeah i i just was thoroughly enjoying it particularly sort of the perform all the performances were, were were great and that was enough just to get me through and i watched it again the second time this evening before we did this and i was just swept along again i was going to sit there and make notes and i was just watching it again and laughing at it all so it obviously worked for me on that level
0: I mean, you talk about Doctor Who fans nitpicking. I mean, as a survivor of Rec Arts, Doctor Who, that was all we did from 1992 (laughs) until 1999. We just sat there and we harshed on the classic series stories that were getting older and older and were not maturing along with us. But yeah, I went into this episode with a kind of chip on my shoulder after the end of The Vanquishers, and there were just so many loose threads and things that Chibnall seems to have forgotten about while writing. I kind of went into Eve of the Daleks in a bad mood, and the bad mood was washed away within a couple of minutes, and I was just you know, happier and happier with each iteration. But I have just one question about this time loop then, and I'll bring that to Jan and and, and Daniel. How come Sarah's mom was not aware of the time loop? Because she was certainly a part of it.
1: For me, I think it was just, it was one of those plot convenience things you know, she wasn't because Chibnall needed her not to be. So therefore she wasn't, or maybe, you know, the excuse could be, well, the phone was there. So whatever call she was making, we're somehow getting caught up in the time loop. But it's one of those things where I, I, that one didn't stand out to me. It didn't bother me that much because like, everybody else. I mean, I, I went into it being a little skeptical too. And then the fact that it was so funny and it was so ridiculous. I, I didn't worry about the big glaring plot holes that were going in there that I might normally have um, for if it was something that was serious or something that didn't engage me, except because you just brought up the flux. Now we, when we left, we last left the Doctor at the end of the Vanquishers. In theory, the entire universe had been fluxated, and all we had left was our solar system. Maybe we saw Neptune get blown up, um, and we did. The, the flux did get brought up by the Daleks because that I thought was actually very cool. That the reason the Daleks were after the Doctor in the first place was because she took out so many, you know, millions of Daleks off screen and used the flux to get them. And they were blaming her, even though, as she said, it was really the Sontarans. But the fact that it's, you know, I think Dan says it's a week since you saved the universe. But we don't know what happened. We don't know. There was never any resolution as to what happened to basically most of the universe, let alone our solar system, how all that went in, and, you know, it seemed like nobody, again, nobody in the world remembered that any of this happened, so we never really heard about how all that was reset, and that that kind of stood out to me in, in a negative way, because it was like, yeah, you never resolved this six-part, you know, you know, heavy-duty thing that you were doing, and now we're just supposed to reset and go back to the wacky, which was fine. It was it was a very good bomb in some ways, but I just wanted a little bit more in terms of concrete what happened or how it happened, and, you know, but that's just me, so... I guess we'll
0: find out a little bit more in October or whenever the centenary is yeah. going to be, because that is probably going to be the next um, episode that picks up from from the flux.
1: Yeah, I mean, she did – I mean, I was going to say at the end, she did actually bring up the fact of the stuff that Tecton told her about, you know, time is catching up to her, her her actions are catching up to her. So there was a little bit of a thread that went through, and I, I figure we're going to get that a little bit more next, epi- next special, and then finally the centen- yeah, centenary one um, – as well. And when we get to the shipping part of it, uh, I have, I have stuff to say about that too, but anyway, oh, we we are going
0: to get to that.
1: (laughs) Yeah. That's what I'm saying. I'm not tangenting yet, but there's more that ties in with the flux stuff, but.
0: I have a couple of questions I want to clear up before we get to the emotional part of the fam's part in this episode. Uh, So Daniel, I'll, I'll just ask you and then I'll turn to my other panelists. I did not write any limericks for this week uh, the way that I did for um, Once Upon Time and for Village of the Angels. And I can see Sai and Jan breathing sighs of relief that they <laughs> have no limerick challenge this week. But I want to ask you, Daniel, who is creepier? Is it Nick, who has his uh, serial killer style relics from failed relationships? Or was it Jeff who had the disturbingly broad Donald Trump Jr. size taxidermy collection and literally a Pathmark size storage locker full of expired canned food with the rather alarming label "Beef up your beans"? Which of those guys would you less want to meet
2: in a dark alley? Oh, Jeff, definitely. I mean, you've got you—you know—you've got a man who keeps you know how how many hundreds hundreds of Tins of beans with with beef, you know, that's that's not a good that's not a good diet. Um, and and taxidermy is is kind of a bit of a bit of an odd thing as well. I, again, why would you have all those animals that that should have been you know kept alive or just you know I, I, yeah Jeff would would be definitely be somebody who I would not be uh, wanting to be stuck in a lift with um, in, in a storage locker or anywhere else to be honest. Um, I mean, uh,
0: for those of us on YouTube who've seen the Chuck Testa taxidermy commercial, that's where I thought this was going. <laughs> but they, they, they never came back to those darn stuffed animals again, all those dead antelopes or elk or whatever it was.
1: Or, it was it, or also, they didn't go back to why he had an entire, you know, party store in another locker because he had all the – you know she said all the holiday stuff and uh, it's like – there was a whole other Doctor Who episode that could have been made out of just like Jeff's background and what was going on with Jeff, but –
3: well exactly. Yeah, I mean why had he got weird chemicals down in the basement and fireworks as well? It, yeah, it was a very eclectic set of stuff he's been
2: collecting and storing all that time. There was the hint that he was sort of living there and he's wasn't it when they went yeah. with, the, with the sofa? It. Yeah. Yeah. I I don't think I'd want to live at where I'm also storing dangerous chemicals and fireworks. Um but you know I suppose it needs must if he's if he's sort of you know homeless and he, he can just store his and, and live where he's storing his stuff but I
0: mean, it was pretty transparently Chekhov's storage locker because with the exception of the Chuck tester room every single room had a role to play in the resolution because the fireworks uh, had a role to play and the chemicals had a role to play and Nick was able to obtain his much-needed emotional catharsis by blowing up all of his ex-girlfriend's uh, 50-year-old Monopoly boards and, and roller skates. And, of course, the uh, 1970s-style Rumpus Room uh, was the decoy in the second-to-last iteration. So at least that was clever, maybe, in the sense that every single room, except for the dead animals, had a part to play in beating the Daleks?
3: Yeah, I think so. I think that that sort of worked okay, didn't it? So, Except we, we missed a trick not getting everyone dressed up in party clothes when they're sat on the sofa taunting right. the Daleks
1: that would have worked great because they I mean that was yep. another thread because he's, he's got this whole party city in there so what I, I was expecting something I didn't know what but I thought all that holiday yeah. stuff was going to play into it especially as a holiday episode so that was a missed trick
0: so with one exception in the guest cast who I'll come back to and talk about last I think we've talked about um the, the mom and Sarah and Nick so let's talk about uh, the fam and we'll start with the least essential member first um Dan in this episode had – well, I'm going to talk about this with Jan in a moment. But Dan didn't – except for that one uh, bit which we'll talk about, Dan didn't really have much to do here. It wasn't really his episode. It was just an episode that he was in. So let's then talk about uh, Thasmin instead. Um, For those of you who were living on Neptune before the flux blew it up, Thasmin is this long-simmering – theory that 13th doctor and Yaz are doing it. And there was that suspiciously placed mattress on the floor of the TARDIS console room in uh, chapter one of the flux, the Halloween apocalypse. And here we get the revelation that yes, Yaz really does have a romantic crush on the 13th doctor and I was like, thank you that needed to be acknowledged. I'm really happy to see it
1: yeah well, that that was definitely been seated for a long time so at least that played out so
0: but as Chibeth gives, <laughs> Chibeth takes away and the only way that the doctor learns that her longest serving companion pretty much ever has a thing for her We need a white male to tell the doctor this.
1: Straight (laughs) white male.
0: Yes, a a straight cis white male. As I was watching this, I was thinking, Jan and I are going to have a long talk in a couple of days. Um, So Jan, (laughs) break this down for us. How does it work that when you have the first uh, same-sex relationship between a doctor and her companion outside of Trout slash Fraser Hines slash Vic from the 60s
1: (laughs) –
0: how is it that it takes a cis straight white male to explain it to the to the, to the first female doctor?
1: Because it's being written by a cis, head, you know, white guy who apparently thinks that men have to explain to women emotions. I, mean, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it, it was very. I mean, it, in some ways, I feel like Dan was supposed to be the audience you know the, the audience explainer at that point so he could hit everybody over the head and say in case you missed it over the last three years look they both have a thing for each other and that was frustrating as all get out because we didn't need that um i, I like the fact that i mean it, it's obviously been building up and i'm somebody who always liked to sort of slow burn unrequited relationships whether it's odo you know going after kira you know longing after kira on deep space nine or The weirdness for me that was nine and Rose, which I liked as compared to 10 and Rose, which I didn't like, Um, you know, the possibility of like 11 and Clara and 12 and Clara. Um, So that part I liked and I'm glad that it finally paid off and it was finally something. But I really, really would have preferred it if Yasmin had said something to Dan herself rather than the other way around. Or even if he I mean, even if he Dan had just picked it up and like, why haven't you said anything? That would have been okay. But the fact that he suddenly felt he had played Cupid drove me up the wall. And one of the things I was going to say is that there's been a lot of discussion. A lot of the shippers out there are you know, now over the moon because they're finally being you know, recognized and their ship is theoretically canon. But there are a number of people out there in Doctor Who Fandom who seem to think that this means that within the next two episodes the doctor and Yaz are gonna like go off somewhere, you know, and, and the doctor is gonna become human and they're gonna spend this nice long, you know, 50-year period together until they're both old and gray. And that's and they're gonna have this romantic happy ever after until the doctor regenerates. And it's one of those things like if you think there's gonna be a happy ending here you know, you're not paying attention. This is not going to happen. Um, there's obviously all this angst and if the doctor reciprocates Yasmin and I sort of, I'm not sure how much she does because it's a doctor and we don't know how the doctor really, except with Riversong maybe we don't really know how the doctor reacts to his, her companions. And, um, also, the doctor's got so much, you know, on her back right now, and so many things that she's dealing with. I can't see her suddenly, you know, suddenly saying, "Oh, let's just drop it all and forget about it all, and I'm going to go off and have this great romance for the next fifty years." So,
0: I mean, it's it's a little bit of frustration because you've had this very long running plot thread of going back to the Timeless Children about the doctor's lost memories, and all she wants more than anything else in the world is to get her lost memories back. And when she finally gets the bag, she drops them into an Oubliette in the TARDIS console with a post-it note, We'll see you at the regeneration episode because we're not gonna discuss it again. But right, of course then. it's
1: Chekhov's uh, you know, watch or whatever or you know, uh, chameleon arch, whatever they're to call
0: it. So in this episode we've had Chekhov's storage locker and we've had Chekhov's <laughs> chameleon arch. And now we have Chekhov's unrequited crush, because with next episode gonna be a historical rap with a special celebrity guest starring Crystal Yu – where is there going to be time – and then you have to assume that we're going to be getting uh, Joe Martin back in the centenary. Um, where is there going to be time to resolve uh, the doctors uh, you know, being the subject of Yaz's unrequited crush, and where are they going to fit this in with two hours left to go? Uh, Cy and Dan, let's hear from you on this. Uh, where is this going? How are they going to resolve it? And why does Dan blab Yaz's secret to the doctor? And when is there going to be payback from Yaz on Dan for giving the game away?
3: That's a very good set of questions (laughs) that I don't know all the answers to. Um, I I find it very interesting sort of watching the doctor's reaction to this because this is, um, I think, of all the new series doctors, um, Jodie's doctor has been the most asexual doctor, who's just not, um, doesn't even comprehend sort of relationships like that, let alone anything else. And I think there was a slight knowingness in her reaction that really intrigued me that she, she's sort of batting it off in a way saying, oh no, uh, what are you saying? I don't even understand what you're saying. They're just words. And then suddenly there's just that when she's Questioned on it a bit more. There is that look where she she knows and she's feeling something, but we don't quite know what it is. So, yeah, it it's it was an unexpected ad, um, reaction from me. But again, like like you, we have two more stories. We've got a couple of hours. And I don't know how they're going to resolve it, but I'm very intrigued to find out what they do because now it's out in the open. It has to be confronted in one way or another somewhere.
0: Or Chibs being Chibs has to be uh, locked away in Chekhov's storage locker and not discussed again until the second episode from now, which is also the last episode.
1: And, and also, mm-hmm. given the ending of season two of Torchwood, I'm half expecting it to be some kind of heart-ripping, you know, Yaz is suddenly going to die. As You know, there, there's going to be some, like, heartache and angst that goes on to this, and it's, and it's not going to be happy ever. Because uh, this is just me talking about Owen and, and Tosh and Toshiko, mm-hmm. and how that didn't play out, and I will, I will be salty about that forever. But <laughs>
0: <laughs> Well, that, that season only aired 13 years ago, so you have about you yeah. know, I mean, 20 it... more years to go before <laughs> your anger dies away. Right,
1: <laughs> but also Chidna likes to repeat himself, so like I said, I, I'm more expecting a bittersweet, you know, could have been, rather than, you know, again, hearts and flowers, and we're living together on a beach for the next 50 years, so...
0: I mean, Chibnall is great at the setup. He's not always so good at the execution, and I wonder if he just has run out of plot threads because there's so much more that has to be addressed in Legacy of sorry, in Legend of the Sea Devils and in whatever the centenary is going to be called. Uh, Daniel, did you want to weigh in on this before I move on to the next topic?
2: I, I think it's very similar to, to the 10th Doctor and Rose in School Reunion where she sort of where Rose confronts him about Sarah Jane. She said, you never talk about Sarah Jane, and yet she was your best friend. And he knows and and that their relationship will never blossom into what Rose wants it to be. And I think there's that reluctance with Jodie's doctor in that she knows that what Yaz wants in their relationship is never going to come to pass as well. And she doesn't want to upset her and she doesn't want to upset Dan and she doesn't want to let on that what she can't give Yaz in, in the same way that what the tenth doctor couldn't give Rose is is never gonna happen. And I, I think you're being a bit unfair on Dan because one of the things that struck me about Dan is that he's just a really nice guy and he sees his two friends and he's he just thinks he's he just wants to he just wants to help them. Get together, and I don't think he obviously doesn't think about the, you know, the implications that you know, one of them is is a thousand, however thousand, many thousands of year old years old the doctor is now. Um, he he just wants people to be happy. As he, it, it, that's what he said in his first episode. What's what's the point of uh, you know living if you can't make people happy? And I th- he's just just wants them to be happy, and I think that's what he's thinking. That's why that's what his motivation is in in challenging Yaz about her feelings for the Doctor. Um, And I have to say, John Bishop's been really... I I didn't really know him uh, much of an actor before he did this. And it's not been a huge showy performance. It's just been a really nice, understated uh, performance. And we've got to remember that during Flux, Yaz and Dan spent three years together, so he probably knows her more than he knows the doctor and isn't quite fully aware of the doctor's heritage to put it to right put and it. he did actually
1: bring up the whole her, her you know watching the uh hologram wistfully yeah. which we picked mm-hmm. up i mean the my one of my biggest frustrations i think is i wish this conversation had happened during flux even if it was that him not knowing the doctor that well and saying you know you know did you ever tell her what's going on or making assumptions because I just think it's been, it's waited too long. And as we were all saying, we have maybe 90 minutes, you know, maybe two hours left of story time. And the resolution for this is, I just wish this had gone on earlier. And, you know, as a queer woman myself, I mean, again, I I think John Bishop is great. I love Dan. I think he's a great character. Um, It's just frustrating because, especially when you're dealing with two women, that you have to have the straight man coming in and sort of like fixing stuff. And and normally women are more, even the doctor... I think Chibnall has dropped a lot with the Doctor as a woman because, I mean, and that's a whole story, you know, whole other episode in itself in terms of how he's written her. You now, the first woman Doctor has been very, very frustrating in terms of her portrayal, but it would have been nice to kind of have this play out earlier. I mean, I don't know if it should have been with Ryan and, and Graham, but it just feels like it's, it's, it's coming too little too late, even though it's suddenly, you know, the shippers are really happy about it, so...
3: Yeah, I do wonder whether this is um, something to do with the sort of state of flux that the series has been in, uh, particularly with uh, the flux series being truncated and rewritten and rewritten and rewritten depending on what they can do and whether because the season was truncated and we lost episodes, whether this was stuff that would have come out a bit earlier and maybe a bit more naturally within a longer story that now has to be dealt with and almost shoehorned into some somewhere where it doesn't quite fit because, right, because of that. We
1: need, we need a resolution. Cause he, I, I honestly do believe he's been seeding it from the beginning. There are certain things yes. I think he always had plans on, which is great, even though it kind of was slow. Cause there are people who are in denial and claiming this came out of nowhere. And this definitely did not. Come
3: no, out of it's nowhere. been there from the start.
1: Right. I mean, I, to me, he's never brought it up, but I'm now wondering if the reason that, Yasmin tragic commit suicide, and you know when we saw her backstory was because she was dealing with issues, you know, in terms of her sexuality, etc.
3: It's entirely possible. And
1: I, and I wish that had been more of this uh, conversation because I think that would have been a really good point. But mm-hmm. it was brought you know, up
2: in *Revolution of the Daleks*, wasn't it? Didn't Captain Jack mention about, or am I when they were in the um, in the, 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 the in that giant sort of laboratory where all the Dalek mutants were? Didn't he make make a mention about it? Or am I, am I yeah, no, from? no, he does, doesn't he? Yeah, but, yeah. Um, something sort of about traveling quite... with the doctor? Yeah.
1: Hmm.
2: I don't know whether that was sort of a hint towards it as well.
0: So I'll make two points here. Uh, number one, again, uh, in terms of writing the script for the episode, it's much easier to be critical because critical is funny than it is to gush. So I have been unfair to a lot of the production team here just for the sake of being interesting. Um, I do want to say that I think that I was skeptical of John Bishop coming onto the fam because, again, we didn't need another white male after three years of Graham. I didn't understand what role he was going to play. I think that he's terrific. I think he's very funny. I think he's very compassionate. I think he's a very calming presence, and I like what he as a comedian and burgeoning actor has had to add to the series. So I'm very happy with the you know, the actor the actor John Bishop and the, and the character of Dan, and I was taking a cheap shot about him spilling Yaz's secrets. So the second point I want to make is this, and I agree with Daniel a thousand percent. Uh, you have had Yaz and Dan traveling the world in the early 1900s by themselves for three years. So yes, Dan has spent a lot more time with Yaz than he's ever spent with the doctor, which begs the question, the two of them were not traveling alone they had Kevin Alley with them for every minute of those three years and now all of a sudden their best friend and constant companion died for plot convenience at the end of the last episode couldn't somebody have said I really miss the professor right about now
1: yeah that was another missed opportunity because it's like but that Unfortunately, that's a Doctor Who thing to, in general, where we suddenly forget about characters because we have to move on to the next one. I mean, the Doctor himself used to do that with his companions between one season and the next. But yeah, I, I, it would have been nice if there, or, or even if we had just seen like a picture of him in the console room or some mention of something, you know, because it, it was. It, and I really liked McNally's character too, so he was one of the better things about the the Flux series, so mm.
2: I think it's a shame they killed him off, actually. I would have liked to have seen him uh, maybe in some way becoming involved with UNIT, sort of, you know, not being able to get back to his time and then being taken on by Kate Stewart as as a member of UNIT. That would have been quite good. And I'm sure Big Finish would have, you know, enjoyed that as well.
1: <laughs> well, I, I honestly think Big Finish is going to do those three missing years of like Yaz and Dan and, you know, the, and Professor Jericho's life at some point. Because it's very Indiana Jones. There's a lot of you know, like fun adventures they can throw in there. So either they'll get them or they'll do it in you know, narrative form. But we'll, I'm sure they're going to get to it eventually.
0: <laughs> Hopefully we have not heard the last of Kevin McNally. But speaking of having not heard of the last of uh, certain characters, uh, I want to ask you, who here was thrilled to see Carl again? And I got to tell you, <laughs> I was so excited to see Carl again that I had to go to Wikipedia to be reminded that we'd even seen him in the first place.
3: (laughs) Yeah, it was only when I came onto Twitter after the episode and everyone was saying, oh my goodness, look, it was Carl. And I was there thinking, Carl, hang on. I know that name. Where was he from? And I hadn't, because I haven't watched The Woman Who Fell to Earth for quite some time now, um, it hadn't landed with me at all. I just thought it was a bit of... Bit of comedy shtick at the end, yeah but I, I suppose I suppose sh- it's part of. Go on, Jeff.
1: <laughs> no, I was just to say I had the same thing. In, instead of Twitter, it was Gallifrey Base, and uh-huh. yeah, I had no memory of him whatsoever. And I I thought maybe he was Jeff. <laughs> I had like, no idea <laughs> who he was, and I had to have the people of Gallifrey Base. Tell me who
0: it was. So yeah, mm-hmm. I, I saw that on Facebook too. People asking, was was Carl, comma Jeff? But you, you know, if Joe, Joe Ford, Joe, if you're listening to this, Joe who watches Women Who Fell to Earth, you know, pretty much every other night, we apologize to you, Jeff. Uh, we apologize to you, Joe, for not recognizing Carl. I'm sure Joe got it right away.
3: <laughs> oh, I'm sure he did. Yeah. But yeah, it was um, it but it all feels like it's part of that end of an era thing where they're just bringing things back just to make the audience smile who can remember three, four years back, however long it's been now and, and all of that. So, yeah, it was just a nice little touch.
1: Right, I have a question because, you know, I'm not that up on UK geography. Um, last time we saw Carl, he was in Sheffield. Can't you actually see fireworks from Sheffield that are happening in Manchester? <laughs> that
2: was, no, no, that no, was it's not that the,
1: close. That was really odd. I mean, maybe he was hanging out in Manchester for a reason. Maybe we he just know. moved. Right. Perhaps
3: he's just had enough of Sheffield now, <laughs> but it is, uh, it's an hour on the train from Sheffield to, okay. to Manchester. It's not, Huge distances.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I got the, I did get the joke, you know, of of Liverpool and of Scouse Dan bitching about being, you know, why did mm-hmm. it up to do Manchester, Manx, Manx, et cetera. But uh, the Sheffield thing, I wasn't. It was just odd that Carl was suddenly there and on the hillside watching these things from wherever he was. And- I mean,
0: for me, when I lived in Los Angeles County many years ago, we lived on top of a hill and we were facing west towards the coast. And on the Fourth of July. I was able to see fireworks shows from five or six different parts of Los Angeles County going all the way down to Santa Monica, and that was a spectacular sight. But Carl appeared to be trampling through the woods directly behind the remains of the warehouse. Mm. That's just really narratively convenient.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it almost makes me wonder if Chibnall is somehow going to bring him back to the last episode. I don't know why, but... Maybe that was sort of our our hint that we're going to see him in the centenary one. I don't see him going back to, you know, Chinese pirate time and sea devils. But um, and then it makes me wonder, are we suddenly going to see this? The Tenza is is Tim Shaw going to show up in our finale also? Because Uh, I mean, I don't want him to, but I'm just wondering because it just seemed odd that there was suddenly this big, you know, sort of camera on Carl, et cetera. Maybe it was just a ha ha. You know, we're just going to throw this in there. But it, it seemed weird.
0: We have talked a lot about unanswered questions in the Chibnall era. We've talked about when is the doctor going to open that bleeping stopwatch and get the rest of her memories back. We've talked about when is uh, Bazman going to finally resolve itself. You know, We also have to ask when are we getting the Ruth doctor back. Uh, my big question is are we going to see Joe Martin regenerate into David Bradley in the second to last scene of the Centenary special, which is my headcanon. And hopefully we come back in ten months and find out that I was right what happened to Carl was never a question that I wanted answered.
2: (laughs) You do get that um, with Chibnall scripts though. Sometimes you, you kind of think, why did you include that when you could have had something else? I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of, of that scene in resolution where you've got the family who realize they're going to have to talk to each other. Um, because you know, the internet's down now have okay it, it's one set but you've got three actors um employed to do that scene actors I was gonna say aren't cheap but you know you 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 employ three actors for a, a 30 second scene which you could have kind of used elsewhere and I think to have a character who let's be honest nobody remembered I certainly didn't remember who he was um to come back just to look at fireworks and go oh isn't that lovely it is a bit like I don't know having uh, Miss Winters come back and watch the Doctor falling off um, the the, the <laughs> at, at the end of Logopolis, falling off the radio telescope at the end of Logopolis, or something like that. It's it's it ma- it didn't really make any sense to me, other than the fact that it's just you know somebody going, oh, is it nice? Oh, look at those fireworks, aren't they nice?
0: That's uh, that's actually a great idea. I would have loved to have had a random uh, Miss Winter Angelico cameo at the very end of Logo- Logopolis. <laughs> 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 uh. Maybe that's another idea for Big Finish if Patricia Maynard and uh, Alec Lindstead are still alive. If you're out there, Big Finish, please answer the question. Where were they? <laughs> At uh, Joshua Bank. Uh, so before we move on and talk about the next time trailer, does anyone else have anything else they want to talk about this episode that we haven't had a chance to talk about over the previous hour? Daniel, starting with you.
2: I, I've seen a lot of um, people going on about how creepy and, and stalkerish Nick is. I don't think he, I, I, I don't get it. Maybe because I'm a bloke, I don't get it. But we've, I, I, I. it made me think of that scene in Passing of the Ways where you've got the two programmers and he says, the, the, the man says to the woman, I'm only here because of you. When you joined the programme, I joined the programme because you were there. And nobody's accused him of being a stalker. Um, I, I just kind of, okay, so Nick has some very sort of um, OCD tendencies in keeping... You know ex girlfriend's um, belongings, but for me, he comes over as being quite shy and awkward. And you know, the, the, was it the, the the say about you know the the, the, the shy widows are the keepers or something? Right, right. And and I'm bearing in mind that my wife and I are about to celebrate our tenth wedding anniversary. I, I think, yeah, um, a shy weirdo would be yeah a keeper. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Uh, Sai, anything else about the episode uh, that we haven't talked about? Um,
3: I don't think so. I think we we've done a pretty good job here. So certainly everything that I've I've enjoyed and not enjoyed, we we've talked about. And I do like it when they get to a door that won't open. That's always a great bit in Doctor Who. You always want one of those bits where they're so nearly there. And then at the last minute, they fail. I like a bit of that. So it was good to see that cliché back.
0: Jan, how about you?
1: Um, I don't think so. I mean, we've mostly covered everything. And I honestly, even with the flaws and, you know, like when Simon just mentioned the doors, it's like, why was there a force field around the front door but not around the back door? I mean, there's a lot of like – if I think about it too hard – I'll I'll start getting annoyed. And I don't want to because I really enjoyed it just for the visceral, like sitting there and watching a fun adventure and having really goofy, you know, a lot of, you know, good verbal humor and laughing at Daleks and having the scare but not being like creepy gross, you know, or or getting too intense in in terms of the horror end of it. Um, So it, it played, it played really well. And, you know, my favorite Chibnall episodes are probably, you know, Dinosaurs on the Spaceship and then Pond Life, which is the same thing. I really wish he had leaned more into the comedy for the last two years because a lot of i think to me a lot of the problem has been that along with just very very erratic writing is that there wasn't a lot of humor there wasn't a lot of fun um you know and you didn't have these kind of just wacky adventures for the sake of adventures there was a lot of this is a serious story and we have to deal with this Mm seriously.
3: no and i think you're right i think particularly after the flux series we needed something that was that wasn't quite as complicated yeah, and just a was just fun. Yeah. You, yeah, exactly. And I think in that way, it really, really worked.
0: When Chibs does humor and pop culture references, he does them very well. So again, I have a little trouble picking up the accents. Um, I'm pretty sure that I heard Dan make a reference to Groundhog Day, which, you know, that's that's right on point. But I also want to say that when I was in college, my then roommate and I had this obsession with the um, – what was then the syndicated cable TV game show, Supermarket Sweep. And we would, you know, get home from class. we put on Supermarket Sweep every night and try and guess the prices. Um, to have the Doctor canonize Supermarket Sweep in the Doctor Who universe, because Supermarket Sweep as a franchise is about as old as Doctor Who is, maybe even older. So to have the Doctor reference, it had me punching the air. My favorite part of the episode was a reference to a mid-market game show.
1: Yeah, I was just going to throw in that, at least in the U.S. now, there's actually a primetime. Leslie Jones hosts it. So it's, it's actually in, the, at least on the American side, it's definitely in public conscience again, whereas it hadn't been for a long time. Um, I don't watch it, but I, I do remember. I thought that was fun. And also, yes, there was a reference to Groundhog Day because it was actually a very funny line where the doctor says time loop. And then, yes, says time loop. Um, the two of them say it almost simultaneously. And then Dan is saying, you know, Groundhog's Day. And he suddenly looks at them and he says something along the lines of, well, same, it's the same thing. So I, I just thought that was actually a very good line. And, and and one of the things that I think Chibnall did really well here is you've got two people who are both comedians more than actors, and that's um, Ashlyn B. and John Bishop. And they both acted really well. And he, he used that in a positive way without them being like the over-the-top, wacky, you know, whatever, aliens person, whatever. It, it it all worked within the context of the story. And you had humor, but it wasn't, you know, like slapstick crazy stuff and you know, and over-utilizing it.
0: So, next time, there's a great meme going around, and it's that famous uh, photo of the guy with the girl looking back at the other girl. So there's a meme going around with the Dalek now in the background looking jealously at the sea devil <laughs> in the foreground. <laughs> so, Legend of the Sea Devils is our next episode. It is thought to air around Easter, the way that Planet of the Dead did back 12 years ago, 13 years ago. It promises a lot. We're getting a new uh, historical figure. We're getting Madame Ching, uh, the famous pirate from 19th century China. We're getting the return of everyone's favorite villain from Warriors of the Deep. Um, Well, let's, uh, I guess, make that (laughs) second favorite uh, monster from Warriors of the Deep. So, on a scale of one to malcolm clark's kazoo music how excited are we for the return of the sea devils i might have screamed
3: (laughs) i did scream i was really excited it was just that slow focus pull of it just coming into focus
1: and just thinking is it it is it is oh my god it's the sea devils (laughs) I'm I'm a bad classic fan because Warriors the Deep I, I I've seen it and I don't remember it I don't think I've actually seen the vintage the original Sea Devils episode and I was like oh, okay so Chibnall's pulling out some obscure thing the way Mark Gatiss you know brought back Mark Gattis brought back the Ice Warriors that's nice I'm sure it'll be and it looks really cool and it looks better than it did so I'm just I was more excited about the milieu. and also um, I believe that the director on that is actually uh, Asian which is a big thing. And I and also I know that uh, this one was co-written with a, a woman who's a playwright and I'm, I'm forgetting her last name right now. Her first name is Ella, but it's not, so I like the fact that he's actually, and again, I wish this was happening earlier, but we've got a, something that's totally different and he's trying to be more diverse and, and really good in terms of co-writer, director, you know, different, something different in terms of the actual background and then obscure or semi-obscure, you know, monster that we haven't seen in, I don't know. What forty years, <laughs> thirty-five years, well, something
0: like that? What was what the favorite? 1972 Sea Devils is one of my favorite Pertwee stories. It's a consensus choice for one of the best Pertwee's um, in terms of production values. It's got Roger Delgado. <clears throat> it's got Malcolm Clark's crazy kazoo score, which has to be heard to be believed. And the novelization is one of the all-time best. Um, Warriors of the Deep. Uh, Opinion is split on Warriors of the Deep, but for those of you who uh, have heard my defense of Warriors of the Deep on uh, Joe Ford's Hamster with a Blunt Penknife podcast, I think you know where I fall on that side of the aisle. I am very excited to see the Sea Devils again. I'll confess that I had never heard of Madame Ching until about uh, two months ago on the History of Literature podcast. Um, There was an interview with an author who's writing – an authorized remix of treasure Island. Only instead of the 13 year old boy and long John silver, it's going to be an Asian girl and Madam Ching oh, having cool. the same type of adventure. So that was the first time that I'd heard of her, um, reading, reading the Wikipedia page. She has said, uh, you know, uh, her, her resume is strong enough to kill a horse. And I'm really excited to see what they're going to do with her the same way they've brought back other slightly more obscure, but no less important historical figures all through the Chibnall era. That is one of his strengths. So assuming that she's there not as mere window dressing and she's the plot engine and she has a positive role to play in dispatching the the legend of the sea devils – I think I am more excited for this trailer than I have been for an upcoming Chibnall episode on a long time.
1: Yeah, I I actually knew about her because um, in Pirates of the Caribbean, which I was a big fan of back in the day, um, there's a character that's loosely based on her because there's an older Chinese woman pirate when they have the whole council of pirates. And that was based on Madame Nanci. So I, I sort of like, have read about that. Um, but yeah, I, I will give Chibnall a lot of uh, you know credit for what you said in terms of bringing um, – especially – diverse women, you know, non white women as the historical characters, although I think A- I still think Ada Lovelace and uh, Nora Khan were not handled that well. But if Madame Ching is, is dealt with the same way that he dealt used Mary Seacole in Flux, I'll be very happy because they thought she worked really well and this looks to be along those lines. So I'm I'm really happy about that. So instead of having, yeah, oh look, it's another Shakespeare episode or Da Vinci or, you know, people that people know about.
0: And Daniel, have you broken out your kazoo? Have you started playing the Sea Devils score at home, or are you not excited about this? No,
2: I, I, I did actually. We didn't watch the episode live because we have children, and I, I did look on Twitter, and somebody had put a picture of the Sea Devils, and I'm like, ooh. Um, so I did sort of know that the at the end at the end when it, it, its eyes move, and I thought, oh, that's that was quite a, a little bit sort of creepy, and I, I, I love the fact that they haven't. Redesigned it to, to, to in the same extent that they did with the Silurians, which I, I didn't really think was all that effective, um, and uh, also with the Zygons as well. They the, the new series Zygons a lot, seem to be a lot more rubbery than the than the ones from *Terror of the Zygons*. Uh, I I really thought it was um yeah quite a it looks to be quite sort of like a, a another exciting. Um, and diverse romp and i think that's it's it, it'd be just the sort of thing to have as a sort of like a possibly a diversion with maybe a little bit of the dr yasmin sort of triangle or not triangle that sort of relationship that they might need to sort out before they get into the the feature length special in in the autumn um you probably have never heard of a a, a british I can't say politician. He's a political figure called Nigel Farage, and I, oh, as God, soon as the no, we, oh, uh, we know. Oh, sorry. warning, we know, warning. We know. But as soon as the Sea Devil came online, I thought, "Ooh, he looks a bit like him." It's like it just that just made that's just what made me think of him. I think
0: yeah. I made a Donald Trump Junior slam earlier in this podcast. So, uh, anyone else have any other f- favorite detestable politicians that want to punch in the face? Bring them out now.
2: Uh, yeah so I I and I I do love the Sea Devils it's a, it's a really good um great story with John Pertwee and Warriors of the Deep they've with the Sea Devils they've got sort of like samurai um helmets haven't they 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 redesigned them so that they've just got sort of like the face rather than the the fins at the back of the head um and they were very very slow in 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 moving and um you know they still managed to get still managed to shoot people, but it, it's, it's, a, a, it's not as bad as its reputation suggests worries of the deep, I don't think so. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. And I think I, I know some people complain that Chris Chibnall has, has a reliance on the old monsters in, you know, going back to, um, you know, the, the the story the of, Silur, Silur of the two parts of Silurian, two parts of did in series five, but I, I think when you look at what he's done with um, the Cybermen and the the Daleks and also the Sontarans, with with War of the Sontarans, they were back to being a very credible warlike race rather than you know the comedy sidekicks of of the Moffat era. So I, until he I, ruined I, it I,
1: with the chocolate joke,
2: <laughs> yeah. But also using the same actor Dan Starkey, you you kind right. of got the sort of. Um, but the, the other guy who played the, the other Sontar and whose name I can't remember, but he's in a, a sitcom called um, a Scottish sitcom called Two Two Doors Down. And you wouldn't know it was him. And I, I know that's what the board acting is all about. The, you, you know, actors can play different roles, but I was actually shocked when I found out it was this guy who plays um, uh, Colin in this uh, sitcom called Two Two Doors Down. So I'm, I'm looking forward to the sea levels and, I'm looking forward to learning a bit more about, about the, you know, these, these pirates, like you, like you said, um, Jason, you don't really know much about them. So yeah, I'm, I'm looking All forward right. to it.
1: All right. I just want to add like a little bit of uh, information here. The uh, the other writer is supposedly Ella Road, R-O-A-D. Um, who I believe is also a playwright, and it's being directed, and I, my Chinese is bad, so I apologize for mispronouncing it, but Hao Lu Wang is the director on that, so they said, I know he's trying to reach out, and I believe it's a she's a Chinese woman director, and they're trying to do something different, which is cool. And then one minor niggle, as far as I know, BBC America has yet to run the trailer on TV, because the I, there were rumors that this was happening on Gallifrey Base for a while, so we knew there was a Chinese pirate episode happening, but I found out about it because I was on the internet after it the um after Eva the Daleks aired here, and that was the afternoon uh, version, and I thought, okay well they're going to save this for the evening and then they posted it online on their social media and then I rewatched the eight o'clock one and they never showed it again, and I you know tend to have TV on in the background a lot, and I have yet to see them actually airing it on television, which is weird because usually they will show the trailer I know BBC showed it but I I don't know why they're only putting it on Facebook and, and Instagram or whatever. So American, I think American fans would be more excited or more intrigued if they actually got to see it because a lot of people don't follow social media, so... Yeah
3: it's, that's a very odd decision because it's yeah. it's tiny it's it's yeah, seconds like 20 seconds.
1: Long. Yeah. yeah and usually they they run the heck out of you know the trailers and stuff and show them more than at people in the UK so i don't know why for some reason bbc america suddenly decided we're not showing this anywhere but you know instagram and twitter and and facebook for reasons i can't explain so
0: I I recently learned that the trailer that was screened um, at the end of Revolution of the Daleks, the trailer that introduced Dan, also had Craig Ells, Carvinista, playing Dan's friend. Yes. So those trailers are very carefully made and they're meant to be dissected and they're meant to come back and be important later. So point number one, shame on BBC America for not showing that. And Jamie Magnus Stone, who is fabulous, is also going to come back and direct the Centenary special. So we know we're going to get a gorgeous-looking last 90 minutes, uh, even if the writing by Chibnall is perhaps not going to be (laughs) everything we want it to be. So I think uh, that is a good place to conclude our discussion, which was primarily but not always about Eve of the Daleks. (laughs) thank you for joining us on the trap one podcast the executive producer of the trap one podcast is mark who is also our editor this week you can find mark on twitter at quark McMalus quark as in the dominators hello fraser mick as in mc and malice as in the awakening si where can our listeners uh find and hear you online
3: you can find me on twitter at um at Cy underscore heart h-a-r-t no e's I always have put that in because everyone wants to put an E in my name. And you can find me on various other episodes of Trap One, on various episodes of A Hamster with a Blunt Pen Knife, um, on Flight for Entirety as a guest, and on my Blake 7 podcast, Maximum Power, because I've been busy this last year. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Uh, Jan, where can we find you in uh, bookshops or elsewhere on the internet?
1: Well, you can find me on Facebook as Jan Fennick. You have to send me a, a friendship thing, but uh, yeah, I'm there, and I'm also a total Janarchy. That's T O T A L underscore J A N A R C H Y on Instagram, um, and I'm just there, and I just post odd little things as we go along. Um, bookstores, um, most. But everything that I'm involved with has come from ATB Publishing in uh, Maryland. That's Arnold T. Bloomberg. So atbpublishing.com will have uh, Red, White, and Who. It'll have all the outside in-books. And um, my doll stuff right now is out of print. So if you want them. Contact me, and I'll see if I have any stores sitting in my storage unit. (laughs) Hopefully no dollars.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But only on New Year's Eve, 10 Mm -hmm. minutes to midnight. Right.
1: (laughs) But see, I have my own key, so I can get into my own locker by myself. (laughs) Uh,
2: Uh, Daniel, where else can we see or hear you? um, I'm I'm on Twitter, at Daniel Knight 73. Um, I'm also on Facebook as well, but I don't really do Facebook very often, um, only for work. Um, And I've um, only just started doing podcasting. I've done a couple, as I said, with um, uh, Joe Ford on uh, Hamster with a Blunt Pen Knife, um, and hoping to do more. Um, And thank you very much for inviting me this evening.
0: Great to have you. I am on Twitter at Dr. Who Novels, that's Dr. Who Novels, and under the hashtag Dr. Who Pilgrimage or Dr. Who Pilgrimage, I have put Doctor Who on pause this week because it's the new season of Cobra Kai. I am watching that two episodes a night. I get to episodes five and six tonight, and I am stoked. I'll be getting back to uh, series two and the Christmas invasion on January 7th, which may or may not be um, happening by the time this episode drops. I'm also going to plug my new solo podcast, Doctor Who Literature, which is currently available on Anchor, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and a couple of other places. My most recent episode featured the vocal talents of Sai who uh, <laughs> I forgot to mention give, me that one. <laughs> forgot to give me a show, even though we recorded it 2 days ago well, and no. it was released yesterday. <laughs> now, Sai did a great job. We were talking about Doctor Who and the Demons from 1974. And my next episode will be Doctor Who and the Sea Devils and I'm sure my special guest that week and I will have a chance to talk about the last week's next time trailer as as well. <laughs> you can find Trap 1 On Twitter at at trap1 underscore, and you can find all past episodes on trap1.podbean.com or on your podcatcher of choice. Thank you for listening. Trap1 will return next week with a new panel. We hope you'll come back and join them. Good night, everybody.
3: Bye.
1: Okay. Nice meeting (laughs) y'all.